0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And I know I say this every week, but it's incredibly sincere. I really appreciate you finding time for us here. This week, I'm going to try and make it worthwhile. I'm not sure if you appreciate this. uh, Gasoline out in Vancouver is about 205 right now per liter, but it's going to edge up in the rest of the country. Why? Because Vancouver and British Columbia already have this new clean fuel tax kind of agenda being added on at the pump the rest of the country is going to get it starting july 1st and it goes and increases every year right into 2030 so that's on top of the carbon tax but it's many other things i'm going to talk to chris sims Uh, she's a canadian taxpayers federation always great to have her with us talking about our cost of living but the other issue that's been front and center well it's front and center for me because i had my computer hacked my email hacked I've got uh, to talk about that and see about protecting you, making sure that everything's okay. And I'll do that with Ian Patterson. He's with Pluralock. Uh, As I say, you don't want to miss this. This is the kind of thing that is so important. You don't want to wait until you have a problem in your business or in your individual accounts before you take action. Listen to this. It's well worthwhile with Ian Patterson. Plus, I've got Ozzy coming on. I've got Victor coming on. Shocking stat of the week, quote of the week, and I got a great Goofy Award, so I'm really thrilled you're with me today. But first, you know, I made the mistake of reading some of the comments regarding the resignation of David Johnson in his role as special rapporteur. I mean, it was like the instant reminder why I don't really have that much time for the political back and forth. Uh, I appreciate that for some the drama is irresistible, but for me, the partisanship that short circuits common sense Actually, common decency and principle, well, it gives me a headache. I mean, I have no idea what needs some people are fulfilling when they sacrifice their own sense of decency or, more importantly, their own principles to their political tribe. But the thing that's fascinating is how often I'll hear something like, I can't understand how so and so could vote for that politician, or I don't understand how someone can think differently than me, is what they're really saying, which, by the way, is at the heart of support for censorship. Now, come on, if those people who support censorship were being honest, they'd admit they really only want people who agree with them to be able to express their views. But back to, I can't understand how someone could vote for a specific politician. Well, I think I have a guess. It starts with intellectual laziness, a little self-centeredness, lack of curiosity. But as John Stuart Mill stated in his widely acclaimed book on liberty, published in 1859, he who knows only his side of the case knows little of that. I think that's what's important. But the problem is many of us have no interest in understanding or appreciating what the other side of a case, other side of a position is. The lack of interest in what others think, dismissing it out of hand, by the way, is fueling the divisions we're seeing in our country. There's no chance at compromise, social harmony, or a productive political culture for that matter when there's so little interest in understanding what others think. But if you're puzzled by how someone could vote liberal or how someone could vote uh, conservative or support them, now it might be recency bias, but I don't think the differences or the priorities or the visions for the future between the two main parties have ever been more profound. I mean, for example, I mean, arguably the prime minister and liberal party, their top priority is climate change and that can translate into increased government intervention and regulation. Climate change does take priority over other issues like economic growth or capital investment or jobs, which is why the importance of the energy sector is barely ever acknowledged. But more government intervention means more restrictions on individual freedom, whether we're talking legislation supporting censorship of free speech or the increased climate-related regulatory environment, things like you're not going to be allowed to buy an internal combustion engine car Light duty trucks by 2035, or the increased costs associated with policies like the carbon tax or the clean fuels tax, I'll talk about with Chris Sims. Of course, there are other parts of their agenda, not suggesting it's that straightforward, but it is primary. I mean, they do promote trans acceptance or other aspects of the LGBTQIA, and further government intervention in society with things like pharmacare and dental care. But the commitment to climate change, I think, is kind of at the top of the agenda. But my point is that I'm not sure why that's difficult for some to understand why that's supported. That's their priorities. Climate change is their priority, so they, they support it. And conversely, I'm not sure why it's so difficult for some liberals and maybe NDP to understand that cost of living, economic growth, increased government debt and deficits, free speech are the priorities. So hence, they're probably more likely to vote conservative. Now, I'm not debating the merits of the position. I'm just pointing out it's pretty obvious the differences. No, I know. I'm not, I, I just say don't be distracted by the drama, the hyperbole, the BS, or the gossip. There are two very different choices being offered to Canadians, and they merit serious consideration. Now, my experience suggests that trying to convince someone who thinks one way to try and think the other, those kind of people who actually breathe politics, come on, that's a complete waste of time. I'm just echoing what John Stuart Mill said, if you don't know the other side, you may not know much about your own. I mean, there's no, but here's the thing, there's no reason to have this nasty talk in politics, demonize political opponents. I think the visions are are different, they're clear, Canadians have a choice. You know, I think about who's on our side as consumers, as people trying to make uh, ends meet, etc. There is no group that tops my list uh, in a higher level than the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Why? Because government is your biggest expense. You know, I I know that literally. I'm through a period right now where I filed this past week because I have self-employed income, so I filed that but that was okay because I've got an installment due uh, July 1st, but that's okay because I have my property taxes due about eight minutes after that. I mean, I really do feel like, guess who I'm working for. And we've got some new stuff happening across the country that I want to make you aware. So I've asked Chris Sims, Alberta director of the taxpayer, uh, Canadian taxpayers federation, but find them at taxpayer.com. Chris, thanks you. Thank you for taking the time. I'll just start with a mini story last night coming home went to the gas station, filled her up, two oh five dollars and change. $2.05 and change. And that blessing looks like it's trying to come to the rest of the country.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, folks who are watching this from British Columbia, you've been suffering under two carbon taxes now for many years. The second carbon tax, also known as the clean fuel standard, adds around 17 cents extra per liter to regular gasoline, Mike. So that is one of the major reasons why when you glance up and you're wincing and you're filling up your car, that's one of the main reasons why.
0: It always kills me, though. Did you know that we had a – I'm sure you do. I'm sorry. But uh, we had the government call – uh, the Utilities Commission to look into high gas prices about three years ago. But yeah, I know. yes, you're laughing and I'm laughing because we both know they said they had a guideline. You weren't allowed to look at the impact of government
1: on yeah, gas I know. prices.
0: And I'm going, are you kidding me? Like it was, what? It,
1: was, it was one of the last stunts I was able to do before, you know, the COVID madness took over mm. and we delivered uh, gas price detection equipment to the premier and they were mirrors. Yeah. Like <laughs> look in the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Well, I mean, uh, the the role that government plays is huge. I read another uh, thing, uh, report, maybe yesterday, the day before, just talking about, again, what drives a lot of Canadians mad is tax on tax. So as Alberta and, and uh, you know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, et cetera, all get the near, new clean fuels tax and it keeps going up, just like the carbon tax is pro, programmed to go up through 2030. It was the amount of GST that you pay on the new taxes. And again, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, overall, it's, it's in the billions of dollars, of course.
1: Oh, for sure. It's just disgusting. So you do actually pay a tax on tax. The GST or the sales tax across Canada is added after all the other taxes. So it's super gross. Same thing happens for your energy bill. Anybody who has the stomach to actually open that envelope and look at all the different breakdowns, uh, take a look at where the sales tax lands there. And it's after the carbon tax. now. I think it's important for the rest of your listeners to know who are here in Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, like you just said, is that this ingenious second carbon tax that is making fuel unaffordable in British Columbia, that idea has now been cribbed by the federal government, by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he's going to impose that across the country. So, as of July 1st this year, Happy Canada Day, you're going to get a second carbon tax. Now, they're going to call it the low carbon fuel standard or clean fuel standard, whatever. It makes the cost of gasoline and diesel cost more. We don't know how much it's going to cost right off the hop. So, as of July 1st, not too sure of the per liter price. But Mike, the parliamentary budget officer, went through this with a fine tooth comb. And within the next seven years, so tick, tick, by 2030, It's going to be $0.17 extra per litre of gasoline and $0.16 extra per litre of diesel. It's going to be going up on a ski slope scale, but we don't quite know exactly how much it's going to cost us July 1.
0: Yeah, of course, on top of the carbon tax, which is also scheduled to go up. Uh, you know, uh, significantly. So, I mean, just that component, again, of gasoline and diesel, as they say, uh, and this is what it kills me. And I'm talking to Ozzy Jurek about this uh, also coming up. Uh, One of my themes has been politicians standing up and saying they care about affordable housing, wink, wink, and then really pushing up the price of houses in the most dramatic of ways. RBC had a survey out this past week. We had CD Howe two weeks ago, you know, chronicling the huge amounts of money and so I always look at food, shelter, you know, and your energy costs. And, you know, the government fingerprints are all over it. And it's just not well understood, it As uh, uh, including, as I say, I wonder how many people know we're going to get a clean fuel tax on top of the carbon tax as they both are scheduled to escalate, as you say, right through the next seven years.
1: It's major. And for folks who are watching your show and listening, they know, <laughs> like, they mm. get it. What I would implore your listeners and viewers to do, if you're sick of this, tell 10 friends. Mm -hmm. Seriously, what you're hearing here right now and when you listen every week or whatever, what you're listening to, go tell 10 of your normal friends who don't know about this and yet are paying through the nose for fuel, for food, for housing. Because when you increase the price of something like diesel, you are increasing the cost of everything. Mm -hmm. That's because... Everything is brought to us on a train and then a truck. Both of those two vehicles use diesel and they're taxed with the carbon tax. And it's going to be double carbon taxed as of July 1st
0: yeah it's one of the things that i uh, more and more I'm feeling it because you look at this, the surveys telling you that people are having trouble that uh, you know I noticed of course lower income people we' and i'm proud we've been chronicling that absolutely from the get go but said it will rise up, and i really noticed the number of people talking about food costs, for example, you know well into the middle class you know uh, Michael Levy was chatting with us last week saying he's still in shock over uh, twelve dollars for a pound of grapes you know yep. and and we've got stories like this. I just, I'm with you. I don't think people are aware of the role that government's playing in all of this. And as you say, all you have to do is move the diesel costs to impact some food prices because they have to go. But it's, it's just, it's a complicated system and the government's got its hands on all aspects of that system and they're raising the cost of things. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just something I wish people were more
1: aware of. It's almost all the government's fault. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking inflation. I'm talking jacking up carbon taxes on our basic fuels, price of food, price of housing. Almost all of this can be laid at the foot of the federal government. Okay, so as we just explained, the carbon tax, especially two of them, is going to increase the cost of everything. By the way, a lot of folks don't know this, that up until like last week, farmers and ranchers were being charged the carbon tax for drying their grain and heating their barns. Mm -hmm. So newsflash, cows and pigs and chickens all need to be housed in warm locations because we're frozen here six months a year. That was actually being carbon taxed, if you can believe it, to the tune of thousands and thousands of dollars for these operators, these farmers and ranchers. And guess what? That adds to your price of food. So Mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons why we have to really stress this. We don't care that they're wearing the red color jersey. We would be screaming in the same way if they were wearing blue jerseys or green jerseys here too. This is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's fault, largely. And with inflation, this is what happens when you print around $400 billion dollars. And then yeah. you have too many dollars chasing too few things. You cause inflation. And actually on the housing thing, uh, it isn't exactly our wheelhouse, but it's something I noticed. I think it was Scotiabank did a major study pointing out that the federal government is using its money to buy up investments in housing artificially increasing the cost. It was Mm -hmm. based in Ontario on a study that they did, but it was really eye opening. So not only are they jacking up the cost of actual construction materials, not only are local and provincial and federal governments doing a lot of gatekeeping and keeping the housing supply low, but because of their inflationary behavior and their money printing, it's actually making the housing situation worse.
0: Well, as I say, and the key, I think, for people is to become informed, and I really recommend they go to taxpayer.com. Uh, you know, you follow it across the country, to individual provinces, but across the country. And I just, I mean, it's the old cliche, I know, but the more we know, the better protected we'll be, at least be better informed. As to what's going on, because the impact is huge. We're still getting Chris uh, the latest poll. I, I think for seven consecutive polls, it was cost of living is the number one concern for Canadians. Not a surprise. Rising interest rates, also, you know, bit of a surprise for some people. Prime rate goes up, but they do that, and then they go and fill up at the gas tank f- from the grocery store. It really is getting to one of those ca- uh, cases. I don't know how we do it. You know, I don't know how a lot of people are doing it.
1: Well, we do it by telling the government to change, Uh or changing the government. Because at the end of the day, it's you and me and your listeners and their neighbors and their parents and our kids that are paying for this. Justin Trudeau is not writing these checks, okay? This is not coming out of his bottom line. He may be uh, terribly in- unbalancing the budget and blowing our money at the drop of a hat. He's responsible for it, but he's not the one that's going to pay. We're the ones paying right now. There is an- I know you keep track, especially for low-income folks, for-, for the cost of living. Two things. One, parliamentary budget officer, in their explanation of the second carbon tax, pointed out that it's the poorest people. The lowest income, yeah. the working class and eating up into the middle class that are going to be nuked the hardest by this carbon tax and the second carbon tax. Okay, it's one. Two, I just saw a report last week pointing out, and this is hard to say out loud without getting emotional, um, grocery prices, food sales mm-hmm. at dollar stores are of increased hand over fist. Yeah. So when you're there to grab balloons and whatnot, and maybe some recycling bags, whatever you use your dollar store for, take a glance down the food aisle. It's packed now, Mike. Yeah. That was never the case before.
0: As I say, big stuff. Go to taxpayer.com. Chris Sims, as always, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Time now for the quote of the week. Hey, first, I better give a trigger warning. I believe in free speech, right? That'll trigger some people, they don't. Especially the value of questions, though. That's one of my big things, questioning. And you should question authority. But that goes against the prevailing attitude when it comes to uh, certain hot-button issues like climate change, certainly front and center when it came to the government's response to COVID, which reflects the increasing divide, by the way, that one, between people who favor more government control in the name of public safety and those people on the other side who value higher levels of individual freedom. But what's not acknowledged by those in favor of censorship is the danger. Right now, the approach is to demonize those people expressing what the prime minister called holding unacceptable views. Unfortunately, the definition of that is broad and expanding. Remember that during the trucker strike? It sounds over the top. But so was the FBI and White House censoring of social media or federal government issuing misinformation on COVID with the goal of manipulating the public. But my gosh, it's a serious issue. But it was the vilification of those who didn't toe the government line that's most dangerous. People were ostracized, some lost their jobs, were not permitted to interact socially. I mean, they were pariahs. And that gave license for some individuals to want to punish them. I mean, after all, They're not worthy people, and worse. Not much different, by the way, than the approach the Taliban takes or the Communist Party of China. I mean, look at the attack and the vicious attack on Solomon Rushdie by extremists. All you have to do is paint someone as holding unacceptable views, you know, uh, not worthy, that kind of thing, and I think you are inviting violence. But I want to come to the quote of the week from David Zweig, who spent hours at Twitter headquarters after the release of the Twitter files, and this is what he concluded in quotes. This is simply not a story of big tech or legacy press trying to shape our debate, though it most certainly is that. In the end though, it's equally the story of children across the country who were prevented from attending school, especially kids from underprivileged backgrounds who are now miles behind their better, well-off peers in math and English. It's the story of the people who died alone. It's the story of the small businesses that shuttered. It's even the story of the perpetually masked 20-year-olds in the heart of San Francisco for whom there's never been a return to normal, end of quote. His point is, there are always consequences. So we had censorship We didn't allow questions during COVID, and one of the results is all of the things that he's alluding to. No one was allowed to criticize the government approach, but that's consistent with any other area we've been talking about. As I say, I know, I go on about the importance of questioning anything. Critical thought is key. Well, as I say, because I see the other side of that coin with huge negative fallout. It's interesting. There's one subject that I feel like I'm always playing catch up on many of the stuff I'm well on top of, but I hear something the latest in the tech side. And of course, more recently, it's all been about artificial intelligence. And I just feel as they say, I play catch up, I read on it every single day. And it's full of I didn't know that stuff. And then I've got uh, Ian Patterson with me right now from Pluralock. That's our go to guys when I think about both cybersecurity. And I've got some questions about that today. And you know, just the whole nature of this of evolution that's just so dramatic and profound and quick. Uh, so I thought I'd pick his brain on that side of the things with so many, uh, so many things. I mean, the opportunities for business, the concerns for business and individuals, uh, all of those kind of things. Ian, first of all, we always appreciate your fine time for us. I mean, I guess it just never stops getting
2: busy. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, Mike, about cybersecurity. There's always something uh, to talk about when it comes to people getting attacked, whether it's notable celebrities like yourself, whether it's like uh, the government of Nova, Nova Scotia, whether it's healthcare breaches on, in Atlantic Canada. Um, unfortunately, this is just something that we live with on a regular basis.
0: I, I'll just quickly, I'll share my own personal story, and then we're going to move on to artificial intelligence. But just quickly, uh, this is going back about a week Uh I get a a note from, I want to be careful. I don't throw this guy under the bus. I was well familiar and it should have been a note that came to me totally within the realm. It was about an appointment that I had upcoming. I open it up and there you go. My email was infected, you know, from that. But my point only being, it wasn't opening something from a stranger. This person, you know, is exactly, the, I get these kind of email or get this email from one particular thing about a medical appointment. I have a medical appointment coming up, you know, so not unusual. Uh, I just couldn't believe that, uh, you know, obviously I wish I hadn't done it, but then I click on, and of course I have to by hand send notes to everyone who I could find that i had sent anything on the email to. I mean, it was about a six hour process of, of sending personal notes saying my email's been hacked. I mean, it was, I can't, if you haven't had it happen, don't wait till it happens because it is a phenomenal hassle. So I, I didn't know what to do at that point, Ian. You know, I'm sure, I, I, okay, I clearly have been hacked. I didn't know what to do, you know, in terms of uh, protecting anybody else other than warning them and protecting my, m- myself.
2: Well, it's challenging, and I think, Mike, you're describing a situation that affects not only other people but also businesses. I mm-hmm. mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a business example very similar to to what you just articulated. Um, I, I had a situation. I actually got a call, uh, and I'm usually, to be clear, I'm usually the guy who gets the call. I got mm-hmm. a call uh, just a couple of weeks ago from a general counsel of a of a large, very successful, very well known company in Canada, uh, and she was saying, "Ian, we have a situation, and the situation is." The accounting team accidentally sent 1.6 million dollars to some bad guys that they weren't supposed to. And very similar to your situation, Mike, they got an email. They were expecting the email. The email said, "Please change my banking details to a different bank, a different bank account." And over successive week after week, they they were wiring hundreds of thousands of dollars to the bad guys. Now. Um, the good news is that on the last wire uh, they were able to stop and retract it, but that was only saving three hundred grand it didn't it didn 't do anything for the one point six million that they had already sent now here 's what 's interesting you would think of a company large successful well resourced they would know who to call but Mike the exact same thing happened to them that happened to you they didn 't know what to who to call they didn 't know what to do they didn 't tell their insurance provider they didn 't contact law enforcement. Um, They just they were they were sitting there effectively stunned, uh, not not sure what to do. So my message to both business owners as well as individuals is there are steps that you can take in advance to help prevent this from from happening in the first place. That's that's number one. Number two, though, there are companies like ours, Plurlock, as well as others that you can call when something bad does happen and we can walk you through how to help, how to remediate what steps you should be taking, when you should contact law enforcement, when you should contact your, your insurance provider. Um, it, because the reality is every time I go up and do a presentation to an association or a group of companies, I did one earlier this week, I always ask the question, hey, put up your hand, who here has been impacted by either a cyber attack, by a hack or by, by some sort of fraud or theft? And Mike, I got to tell you, it seems like every single presentation I do, almost the whole room puts their hand up.
0: Yeah, I went, I had a, a meeting the other day, right after it, and I, just, I asked a similar question. I said, God, you know, because I had to send all of them, you know, they're on the email li- uh, link and sent them all stuff. And they asked me how it was. And I said, well, have you guys gone through this? Same thing. There was about 20 in the room, about 18 put their hand up and two were lying. So
2: there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well well Mike the, the, uh, the FBI director, uh, former FBI director uh, had, has, has a statistic and, and he says there's really only two types of companies in the world, yeah. those who have ha- have been hacked and those who will be hacked. Um, there's a similar quote which is uh, there's two types of companies in the world, those who know they have been hacked. And those who don't know they have been hacked Mm. so i think i think we're all we're all talking about roughly the same thing and really this is this goes to show about uh the growth that we're seeing i mean unfortunately we're talking about growth of bad guys um but it, it is translating into business impact as well i mean listen when you and i first started talking we went public in september of 2020 we had approximately half a million dollars of revenue you know round numbers we closed out last year 2022 uh, with sixty four million dollars in revenue, wow. so that's almost a hundred x growth in three years, and I think that that just speaks to how important cybersecurity is in the world these days
0: and and it can't be, and I know there's so many things we do as human beings. we wait to have a heart attack to eat healthy if you know what I mean, or to exercise or whatever it is, some cliches, but I'll tell you this is one it is as you said, it can involve hundreds and of millions of dollars. First of all, that's a pretty big incentive, you know, but on an individual level uh, level, it was a, a tremendous hassle doesn't doesn't even begin to tell the outfall, uh, the fallout from this for me. And I, I'm just saying it's something you don't want to wait and something you want to pay attention to instantly. You know, as I say, many will ignore it, but my gosh, you'll be sorry when you did. So let's, let's, let's divide two things. One of the things I want to tell people, by the way, right now, is what's terrific is I call this a Money Talks bonus uh, webinar. You're doing a webinar on Tuesday. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, because this is a chance to get a lot more than I can do with you right now. I mean, I've other things to ask you about, but this is specifically on the subjects we're talking about. And boy, talk about why don't you take an hour and, you know, and get the best.
2: So, Mike, as a result of of your uh, what we'll call it advertisement, your advertisement, <laughs> your email getting hacked, um, what we've done is we've put together uh, an hour long uh, presentation on Tuesday at one p.m. Pacific time, and the subject here is cybersecurity in the age of AI. Okay. So, as a reminder, you know people who first started hearing about Pluralock, they knew us as the guys using artificial intelligence to identify who you are based on how you type on the keyboard and move a mouse. That is a form of artificial intelligence. So Mike, we've been doing AI since way before all the cool kids uh, were, were getting popular with ChatGPT and OpenAI. So we're coming at this from the perspective of, hey, we've been doing AI for many years. We have some authority in this space. Let us use that authority to articulate and help you understand uh, the, the, the opportunity that this new wave of AI is presenting in cybersecurity. So here's what we're going to cover. We're going to we're going to cover um, some practical steps for you, both as an individual as well as you as a business owner, what to do to prevent getting attacked or and hacked, like yourself, Mike. Mm-hmm. We're going to cover what to do once you are attacked. We're also going to cover what does it mean for cybersecurity now that we have deep fakes and we have. Uh, 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 The Beatles launching songs with, uh, you know, fake John Lennon in in the song. What does it mean for security now that these new capabilities exist? And ultimately, where are the investment opportunities? What does this new wave of technology shift mean for cybersecurity? Which, to be clear, Mike, was already a trillion dollar market opportunity even before ChatGPT came onto the scene.
0: Uh, one thing I'd add to that, and I hope you put it in, is if somebody has sent you an email and they've been hacked, you know what I mean? You, so you've been infected, you've you've infected someone, also what they should do, you know, and, and it is, you're so right, Ian. I, I mean, I didn't know immediately what to do, you know, I, uh, what you know, should I cancel my email, sort of, should I get it right off my computer, change my password, what's the steps? And of course, you're going to deal with that. And same for someone who received one of those emails. And as I say, over the years, this is the second time this has happened to me. Uh, once from a friend who sent it, and this is from a, fi- a business. I was, very, but it was way more sophisticated. It was so specific. I think they could have told me my weight, <laughs> you know, and and that's why it makes it uh, somewhat believable. I had that thanks to you and Pluralock, I had that standard. If I don't recognize the email address, I don't open it. You know, that simple as that. If I don't know, it, right. Well, but I did in this case, you know, that w- that was the new step for me. Like, well, yeah. And I know I'm about to deal with these people in a week and they're sending a reminder, you know. So, yeah, it's it sent the shivers up my spine.
2: Well, Mike, unfortunately, it's only going to get worse. So yes. here's here's the challenge with with email it can look like it's coming from somebody you know. Mm-hmm. It can, even the text in the email can sort of seem like uh, somebody that you correspond with. Here's the danger, and this is what this is a prediction that I've been putting out for the last year and a half, is that the, the deepfake technology is getting so good that imagine how hard it's going to be when not only you get the written text email, but you get a phone call. That sounds like somebody that you know, that you trust, that you interact with, and they ask you to do something. There was actually a, a 60 Minutes um, uh, segment that came out just a couple of weeks ago where a, a, uh, a security professional uh, ran a test with the 60 Minutes uh, crew, and she pretended to be uh, the reporter. And that reporter ostensibly called her producer and said, hey, with this international trip, I need my passport number. Of course, it was actually the security practitioner. She had cloned the voice of the reporter. She had made the phone number look like it was the reporter who was making the call. Mm. And what did the producer do? They, of course, gave her the passport number. And, And they did all this on the air. So this was just a couple of weeks ago on national television. Now, imagine if you were to get a phone call from your son, from your daughter, from mm-hmm. your nephew, and they said, Mike, I've just been in a car crash. I need $3,000 right now. This exact situation uh, happened to a colleague of mine just a few weeks ago, uh, a business colleague of mine. Um, and and what did that person do? They, they ran to the bank. They got $3,000 cash, and somebody actually came to pick it up in person. So these are here they're here today and then the question mike is if these things are so prevalent if they're happening all the time what does that mean for you as an investor how how can you uh think about putting that in your portfolio at somewhere right Mm -hmm. because these things don't seem to be going any way in fact they seem to be becoming more prevalent uh and so that's really the, the the question folks should be considering
0: yeah, it seems like it's interesting. We used to talk about the oil market and say maybe the safer side of the oil market was oil services, you know, because of the people who were supplying the equipment. We actually said that about, I uh, was nervous about the cannabis market, but not about the people selling them the equipment. <laughs> you know, that that seemed to be pretty foolproof. But it's similar in this is that if you want to take advantage, you've got to look at different securities, you know, cybersecurity, I guess, as an uh, umbrella. Because this ain't, as you say, this, I mean, it's ridiculous to think this is going away and the sophistication becomes enhanced as we go through here, uh, you know, with new things. And, and I guess that's on the, you know, there's several things. This is a fairly new subject for the layman, you know, uh, all of this coming out. And so you have security issues, um, you're worried about job replacement in some areas. Uh, you know, there's all of those things. And obviously, then the other side, there's hey, that we look for increases in productivity, and all sorts of other, you know, benefits. But that's the thing that we're dealing with at this point. And from just your take, what are people most worried about broadly, when you see the, you know, AI becoming so more, uh, more entrenched or more uh, into all our uh, society areas?
2: Well, I think from my perspective, and to be clear, Mike, my bias is I've been a data and analytics guy for the last 13, 14, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. So I, I always see that these technology improvements are a tool and the that tool will be used by the good guys and it'll also be used by the bad guys. So we've talked now about what the bad guys are and I expect we'll, we'll do more of, which is mm-hmm. use these tools to create more uh, convincing uh, messages across multiple communication channels, voice, video, text, to try and fool people into doing things that they shouldn't. That We're seeing that today, and I expect that will continue. The other thing, though, the other side of that coin is those same tools are also helping security practitioners to do more. One of the challenges with cybersecurity is that there is a massive job shortage, uh, or sorry, a shortage of qualified people. Uh, there's actually too many jobs. There's not enough people. So uh, in 2021, the estimate was there was a million cyber jobs left unfilled. In 2022, the estimate grew to three and a half million jobs unfilled. So there's, there's a deficit of qualified cybersecurity people to do all of the work necessary to keep businesses safe. So what AI is going to do, and we're already starting to see some of it, is for the people who are employed defending companies, uh, running defenses, um, we're, we're going to increase their productivity with AI co-pilots. So we've we've talked, or we, we've certainly looked at and seen Chat GPT. Imagine uh, uh, you know Chat GPT helps you write your email. It allows you to, to write faster, right? It's it's one person you can now write faster as a result of Chat GPT. Well, one of the the big jobs in cybersecurity is looking at um, looking at log messages or error messages. So if you think of a firewall or an antivirus system, that's going to produce some messages saying, hey, there's something suspicious over here. There's something suspicious over there. In most enterprises, that goes to a security team. That security team reviews those logs and alerts. And then ultimately they make a decision, is this suspicious uh, or actually nefarious? Well, that job, that the processing job can be aided uh, by using artificial intelligence, by having a co-pilot sit there and, and try and prioritize, well, what are the of the 100,000 error messages? What are the top 1%? So I think that we are going to see a productivity boost. Um, we're already seeing some of it right now with those same AI innovations, like, like using chat GPT. So it's going to be ultimately deflationary, both for the bad guys as well as for the good guys. But what we are gonna see, Mike, is a tremendous amount of change. Uh, I think that that's gonna be the constant. We're gonna see a lot of change and disruption occurring in the markets. And those companies who have the background and expertise with AI are going to be able to leverage that change. And those who do not have the background and expertise in AI are gonna be left behind.
0: Yeah, I I just look at the adoption of uh, ChatGPT. It's just been unbelievable how the speed of the adoption, and I guess, Uh, People think it's cool and it's also, you know, and that's expanding the number of things you can do, uh, you know, with it. And as you say, (laughs) I worry about the number of things the bad guys can do with it also. I I just think it could be very, very fundamental. You're going to be busy, by the way, Uh, (laughs) you know, at Pluralock, you know, with this kind of thing. But uh, yeah, and that's why I look forward to the seminar here, because you get a chance to be a little more in depth. But I mean, gosh, if you're in business, you're obviously an individual there's issues for both of you, uh, both, you know, areas, as I say, I would really take advantage of this. As I say, uh, yeah, it's one of the things, I, I, although I have a big interest in it, man, when it hits you, I can just say firsthand, it is a nightmare. You know, it's it's, it's, it's a nightmare. And so take advantage of this. Go to the seminar. We'll put it up uh, 1 p.m. again on Tuesday Pacific Daylight Time. We'll put it up on mikesmoneytalks.ca Obviously it's always limited with that technology, but take advantage of it because uh there's so much to talk about Ian thank you for sharing your expertise as usual you you're so generous uh, with your time with us and as as I'm always you know bombarding you with the layman's questions but uh, much appreciated
2: Mike, always a pleasure uh and uh try not to click on any links anymore yeah okay, thanks.
0: Before I get to the shocking stat, let me warn you that I'm not one of those people who responds well to the typical, oh, some may say mandatory, self-congratulatory talk you hear all the time from politicians that really says, hey, aren't we wonderful? Isn't Canada great? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly fortunate. I think profoundly fortunate to have been born and live in Canada. But that doesn't mean I need what amounts to what political feel-good pablum to make me feel better about myself. I don't need that sort of smug or the we're superior to the U.S. attitude that so many people are attracted to. You know, I hear, I cringe when I hear feel-good mantras like Canada has the top healthcare system in the world. No, yeah, we may have healthcare workers as good as any on the planet, but you got to have a helping, helping, uh, helping uh, d- a helping, bit of delusion when you suggest that our system is the top system in the world, I mean, just ask the doctors, other medical professionals working at the Surrey Memorial Hospital. My gosh, who have been chronicling for the public the shocking conditions, staff shortages over the last month. I'm not sure what the hear no evil, see no evil defenders of healthcare do when they hear research of groups like the Canadian Institute of Health uh, that studied uh, wait times in 11 Western countries and found that Canada ranked dead last. Same conclusion, by the way, Commonwealth Fund Index, which ranked Canada dead last among 11 developed countries when it came to receiving care within four hours of an emergency department visit. And we were last when it came to seeing a specialist within four weeks of referral. I mean, the list just goes on in that. But that's just part of the context for my shocking stat this week. I mean, get past the feel-good, the political rhetoric, and what do we find? Well, for an exporting country like Canada, a country that imports goods from around the world. Trade is essential, so it at least should get our attention. In this week's shocking stat, the World Bank and the S&P Global Market Intelligence ranked the Port of Vancouver number 347 out of 348 in efficiency, and we are dead last of ports of similar size. I mean, come on, obviously there's a lot of contributing factors, but equally obviously there is something fundamentally wrong. We had a lack of storage space at distribution hubs, full container yards uh, played a big part in forcing cargo ships to anchor for roughly 10 days on average in the first half of 2022. Hey, that was double the wait time from the year earlier. And by the way, Prince Rupert isn't uh, faring a lot better. It went down 25 spots in the latest ranking. It is now 341st out of 357. And it's not about to get better we oh, we got 99% of the uh, members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada have voted in favor of a strike might happen later this month. And if the strike takes place, gosh, it's going to create real supply chain issues, ripple through the economy and put upward pressure on prices. The bottom line, I don't know how we sit there casually when you find the Port of Vancouver ranking 347 out of 348 in efficiency around the globe. Time now to bring Ozzy in. where you can find him, of course, at ozbuzz.ca. By the way, Ozzy, I want to give you credit at the Special Olympics Golf Tournament. We played it on Thursday. Ozzy was a member. We had a speed hole. He was a member of the fastest team out there, which is always appreciated. Just so you know, if you've played in other charity golf tournaments, there's nothing like a Special O tournament. We finish in just under four hours. Just under four hours. Think about that. Full golf tournament under four hours. We come in for a quick bite, great food, quick uh, introduction to various things that we're doing with Special Olympics, and we were out. They were out of there by six forty-five at the latest. Six thirty for some, six forty-five. So, uh, but Aussie was member of the speed hole super team. We called it, and then we're not going to give the exact number here, but Ozzy's team was spectacular in improvement from past years. I'm not gonna give the details, but they were much improved. So Ozzy, you know how much we appreciate it. Great to see you out there.
3: It was a good day and well organized. You gotta give the organizers at Special Olympics a real kudos because you know, from start to finish, it was very professional done and everybody had a great time.
0: Yeah, great to have you. Hey look, I wanna come back and this is one of my themes and you know about it because I think it's gonna get worse. People talk about affordable housing and I'm thinking, what the heck do they mean by that? Think about it. Maybe listening today, you say, oh, I've talked about, oh, I don't like affordable housing. I need affordable. What does it mean? Aussie, oh, you got a good definition for us? Because I'll tell you, it is the most, it may be the loosest term used in the real estate lexicon.
3: And at the same time, it's the most often used because everybody yeah. says this is what we're aiming for. Well, I think the dictionary says cheap, economical, fair, low-cost, modest, and a bargain. Well, none of that applies to today's house prices. And none of it's
0: possible, though. Like, I always think when someone says, we're building affordable housing, okay, are you getting the plumbers to take a cut? The lumber, is it getting a cut? Are you getting the electricians to take a cut? What exactly are we talking about here? (laughs) You know, and I think that is a problem.
3: Well, the real thing is, when you take a look at RBC analysts now, They're making some real major statements that Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of scary because they say now housing affordability is likely past the point of no return. And by that, they mean that the Bank of Canada is very concerned with, with inflation and they're going to keep on raising rates, which, of course, won't help. Whatever affordability is, it certainly won't help it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a major cost. And we got this, I think, a bit of a surprise for people that we got the bounce up Uh, last week in the Bank of Canada. But, uh, you know, the survey of economists telling us that they expect another one coming up at this point. So, uh, again, uh, we're going to see a bigger challenge. And then the other thing, Ozzy, as you know, that somebody who took out a mortgage, say, in 2020, well, it's probably not due till 2025. So they're not suffering from the higher rates yet. You know, there's certainly types that are, but I'm just saying. So the full impact of the rise in rates, hasn't filtered through the entire economy at this point.
3: Well, and it, it is really major. The, the, the study found that <clears throat> the half of the median pre-tax household income, 49.7%, is now required to cover mortgage payments. Think about it, and mortgage payments and other costs. And in Vancouver, it's 70%. I mean, the numbers are going, you know, into the stratosphere. I wrote in my OzBuzz newsletter this week that I thought, you know, England is raising its rates, the European Central Bank is raising its rates, Australia raises the rates, we raised rates, and the U.S. said we're going to have two more rates coming in the U.S. Now, why? And we may be saying the outlier, well, it's it's Turkey and, and it's, it's Argentina and they have these high rates. Maybe the outlier is, or what the banks are worried about, is that we're having much higher inflation underway than what is being talked about. Oh, the
0: other thing, let me come back to affordability, because, of course, the tendency is to look at house prices, or it might be a rent price. But, of course, that's not the totalitarian of what it costs to own a home. I mean, when we see property tax increases going up, utility rates going up, uh, you know, other things uh, around just there's cost ownership, maintenance. I mean, anyone who's needed some maintenance certainly knows that the inflation uh, in those prices is significantly higher than what's reported. So, I am just wanted to not be so incomplete in talking about affordability, is that it's all the other things that go into uh, owning a home that has to be uh, top of mind also.
3: Not the least of which is taxes. I mean, it, wherever you turn, there's you know, another tax increase, uh, something added to the local government, the provincial government, or the federal government while they're touting affordability. And here, this is <laughs> makes it a little less affordability. Let's do a tax here. I
0: I was surprised. I talked to a couple of uh, people in their uh, late 20s about housing this past week. And I said, well, you know, it's government who is juicing uh, the price, making it unaffordable for you. And I started with this, and they never had considered it. I said, when you have higher tax rates, so let me make easy numbers and say it's 50% of your income goes to some form of tax. Well, that leaves you less money you know, less money left over to be able to get in the housing market. I mean, you've got to start with what the government takes of your income and then all the other things that you and I talk about on a regular basis.
3: Yeah, and it's it's not, not getting any, any better. Because no. of the from BMO Capital Market, he wrote into a report on his club, to his clients that there's a full-scale attack on Canadian home prices. I mean, we now have voices uh, ringing loudly right across the country that we have a problem.
0: Well, and again, uh, the big thing, though, as I was talking to Chris Sims earlier about it from the com, is just the government doesn't admit its role in any of this. You know, we get these reports, and we get a report like by C.D. Howe that you talked about last week about restrictions on land use pushes the existing cost of uh, the housing stock up. Uh, the list goes on. I mean, all the other, other, other levies, and of course, as you say, property taxes, too, that kind of stuff. I don't see how we change because we're not changing government. Government's not changing its approach. It sees housing as a cash cow, and they are desperate for money, and they found a way of getting some money out of it in so many different areas of the three levels of government.
3: Yeah, and it's as you've always said, we need to get them all three in a room, put a lock on the door, and shoot anybody that comes out without having come up with a solution. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm not sure they're interested because they take in too much money from housing. You know, I mean, and the one thing they enjoy is money, our money, that kind of thing. Anyways, Ozzy, look, on that cheerful note, <laughs> but I do, I want to bring up that to people's attention. They hear stuff like affordability. They don't even define it, you know, from politicians. We have to be aware of all the different ways that the cost of housing is is going up. And then, as you say, you report on these conclusions uh by the various financial institutions saying, well, affordability may be a thing of the past. Well, that's the housing market we're in. That's the reality.
3: The point of no return, actually, there was an agent and a buyer standing in a house, and the agent said, this listing is great, but it's really for the cats. The buyer says, what do you mean by that? The agent says, it'll take you nine lives to pay off the mortgage.
0: <laughs> Good stuff. Ozzy Juric goes to ozbuzz.ca. Ozbuzz.ca. Have a terrific week, Ozzy.
3: You too, Mike, and all your listeners.
0: I want to go live to the trading desk now, get Victor Adair in here with us. I'm just going to start, Victor, with the Federal Reserve. Maybe no surprise that they said we're going to kind of pause, pivot, take a break. I don't know what the words are these days. (coughs) Excuse me, but they didn't raise interest rates this past week.
4: Yeah, the Fed, major meeting. Everybody has been waiting on this, and they did not raise rates. The market was expecting that but they had what we would call a hawkish pause, okay? They didn't raise rates, but they said, you know, you better be careful because we, we might raise <laughs> rates some more as we go into the back half of the year. Uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, also had a meeting. They said, you know, they raised rates, and they said, we're not even thinking about not raising rates, and you know, we're going to keep raising rates. So that was kind of the tone. But the market generally, and I mean the, the credit markets, the stock market in particular, believes that the Fed's done yeah,
0: you know, that's interesting, even, eh?
4: Yeah, even though the Fed has said, you know, be careful, we, we might not be done. we will raise rates more if we have to, the market is assuming, and I've been writing in my notes, Mike, for the past year, that the stock market is waiting for what I call a green light special. Like, once, the, once they figure the Fed's done raising rates, you know, Katie, bar the door, you get to buy everything that's not nailed down.
0: Well, and that's what's been happening. Now, I know, wait, I want to put a caveat there. Certainly in a certain group of stocks, that's been happening, but it's now been flowing over to the broader market. We know, you know, the eight stocks or something that's led the way, lots of chronicling on that. But the point being, yeah, they'd already gone, but now it's rippling in the other parts of the market.
4: Yeah, you know, we've talked about how last year was a horrible year for the stock market and the bond market and a lot of money managers. people that are looking after other people's money, I think started this year in a fairly defensive frame of mind with good reason. And then we had another thing. Remember back in the middle of March, we had what we were calling at that time a banking crisis. And you and I have talked about this, that after having interest rates at zero for more than a decade, ramping rates up so quickly so much was probably going to cause something to break. And it looked like, oh, maybe this is it. I mean, in the middle of March, in just a couple of days, the forward interest rate market priced in, interest rates falling by 2% uh, by the end of the year. Like the, a shock went through the market. Mm-hmm. But the Fed and the Treasury came in and basically papered over the problem, You know, pushed a, a ton of money into the market. And that's when things really started to go to the upside and the accelerant, if we could use that term, was artificial intelligence. And it just started to rip. Now, the market is in a FOMO uh, frame of mind here. Uh, and that's just how it is. I mean, the, in the fear and greed index, believe me, the needle is way over on greed here. But that doesn't mean that we're going to top here
0: yeah but and that's a, a great point though I've always we've talked about this before but uh, you were mentioning to me and you know putting it on the blog that you looked at Tesla and you know and the incredible performance of Tesla so people all the way up can say come on isn't that a bit much isn't that a bit much and we really have to know that when you get into one of these momentum situations and we saw it with the game stock and all of these you know whatever those stocks are called going back in January 21 that this was just the explosion here and so they can look like they're overpriced and they can look like they've gone too far too fast. But my, I'm only pointing it out to say it could go farther and faster.
4: No kidding. I mean, Tesla is up 60% in a month. Now that's, <laughs> that's hundreds of billions of dollars. It's up 160% where it was at the end of last year. Uh, you know, And that's just one to, to single it. I mean, everybody knows what Tesla is. It's been a hot stock and all that sort of thing. Uh, I guess kind of the the question is, um, you know, what else is is happening here if the market thinks the Fed is done raising rates? Well, it's showing up in the currency markets. The U.S. dollar had been strong coming out of March and April. Uh, The U.S. dollar has been weak here this week. Uh, The Canadian dollar, for example, we're up at about 76 cents thereabouts. That's a nine-month high on Canada and, you know, I've, I've said this a number of times, that the Canadian dollar doesn't much care about in, events inside of Canada, unless it's really shocking. The Canadian dollar moves sort of counter to the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar is weak and Canada's probably strong, the Canadian dollar moves in sync with the stock market. If the, if the market's in a risk on frame of mind and is buying the stock market, Canada's probably higher. And then there's some input from commodities. But over over the longer term, but the Canadian dollar here at a nine month high, very much a function of the the market thinking that the Fed is nearly done, if not done, raising rates.
0: Yeah, it's and it's so interesting. I know Reuters, for example, in the Canadian case, uh, you know, had a survey of all these economists and every one of them thought there was another rate increase coming in July, as soon as July. And, uh, you know, uh, every Federal Reserve board member Every voter, but all they have, the peripheral guys around, also said there's going to be, their their estimate was two more rate increases in the U.S. by the end of the year. And we've been saying this many times over the course of the year. It's amazing that the market doesn't believe them ever.
4: (laughs) Yeah, we had a situation here a few months ago where the market thought that the Fed would start cutting rates in the second half of this year. Well, that's now gone. Yeah, The, mar- the market's decided, okay, we'll take the Fed at their word. We're going to keep rates uh, sort of high toward the end of the year and then start to fall. Uh, I, I can't not talk about gold, Mike. Uh, the gold market here dropped to a three-month low this week and then bounced back, by the way. But one of the Achilles heel for the gold market, or I should say kryptonite, for the gold market is when we have inflation falling, as it has been a bit, that's still mm-hmm. way too high, and interest rates going up, that means that real rates are, are strong and real rates rising is just not a good environment for gold, even if the US dollar is weakening.
0: Yeah, and that's always a, been a very consistent correlation when you looked at uh, real rates rising, gold prices uh, you know, uh, coming into play, that kind of thing. So uh, falling. So, yeah, that's another one. That's a very key component for people who like gold to keep an
4: eye on. I think that maybe to wrap it up, Mike, we kind of have to ask ourselves, it, it, this this race to the upside we've been seeing in the stock market, particularly the last couple of weeks, is is this a case of as good as it gets? You know, the market has got the bit in their teeth, as it were. Uh, sentiment is is very bullish. The, anybody that was bearish has had to throw in the towel And, you know, that's usually, you know, when, when we set up for a turn and uh, as our good friend, Martin Mirrenbiel has told me many times, he says, Victor, you know, you like to call BS. You know, that's in your character. That's in your blood. And so, you know, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, maybe part of that is I missed this race to the upside, so, you know, I want to get them or something like that. But I am not jumping into the stock market here with both feet. Let me tell you, I'm looking for this market to maybe have some reason to to, to stop going up.
0: Well, and, and obviously, as prices go up and the fundamentals aren't following at this point, it's anticipating what the fundamentals will do at best. Well, you know, you've got to check your risk profile. Every one of us has to check our risk profile. This is a little too rich for my blood going on right now. When I hear Tesla up 65% in a month, I go, probably not going to happen next month. You know, <laughs> that that kind of thing. So, yeah, it comes back to individuals, their own risk tolerance, that kind of stuff. Vic, thanks for very much for taking the time. You go out and have a terrific week.
4: Mike, uh, it's always great being on the show with you, and thank you and Kathy for coming up to Qualicum here this past Saturday and participating in our special Olympics event. That, That really, really was great of you to do that. Thank you.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I'm going to start with a list of government spending. So this is courtesy of Reuters. In Italy, the government helped a retailer open chocolate and gelato stores across Asia. In the U.S., they offered a loan for a coastal hotel expansion in Haiti. Belgium backed the film La Tierra Roja, a love story set in Argentine rainforest. And Japan is financing a new coal plant in Bangladesh and an airport expansion in Egypt. Now, funding for the five projects totaled $2.6 billion. But here's the goofy part.
4: All of the
0: countries counted their backing as so-called climate finance. Grants, loans, bonds, equity investments, and other contributions meant to help developing nations reduce emissions and adapt to to a warming world, at least according to the UN. Of course, a coal plant, a hotel, airport expansion, chocolate stores, and a movie really don't seem like efforts to combat global warming. Nothing prevented the governments though that funded them from reporting that as such to the United Nations, counting them toward their giving total because they'd made a pledge to spend and combat climate change uh, in developing nations. But there's no guidelines along with it. The UN Climate Change Secretariat told Reuters, it's up to the countries themselves to decide whether to impose uniform standards and and developed countries have resisted doing that, obviously. You know, I think it's because they knew their pledge to spend that kind of money was BS. Kind of like using a fleet of private jets going to a conference to combat climate change. Mark Jovan, he's the Philippines Department of Finance Undersecretary, he represents the Philippines at the UN Climate Talks, summed it up by saying, this is the wild, wild west of finance. Essentially, whatever they call climate finance is climate finance. But this is not just fodder for some world-class eye-rolling. I think it has a big impact, along with so many other blatant hypocrisies by climate elites. And I think that's what fuels cynicism, As climate elites tell citizens to make sacrifice they aren't willing to make themselves. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, so much of the climate agenda was BS from the start, exacerbated by a no-questions-allowed a- attitude, even from climate experts by like Roger Pilkey Jr., Nobel Prize winner William Nordhaus, Judith Curry, Richard Lisden, much like COVID, challenging the government narrative, fast-tracked individuals to oblivion, which meant the blatant vig- uh, virtue signaling, some say that it has been perfected in Canada, went unchallenged. Arguably the goofier part is how many people who say they have a deep concern about the climate, ignore this kind of hypocrisy. They salute the empty gestures and the ineffective policy. And that does nothing but fuel skepticism about the climate agenda. I mean, we've been going through this, looking at some of the ESG expenditures and how phony they've been. But as I say, right here in this one, the big climate initiative to help developing countries, I don't think many of us considered that it was opening chocolate and gelato stores across Asia by Italy, or, you know, financing a film, or in Japan, financing a new coal plant in Bangladesh, or an airport expansion in Egypt. No, this is the kind of thing that people have been asked to swallow for, gosh, for decades now, and it seems that the climate activists are absolutely oblivious to it. It's incredible. That's all the time we have this week, but I want to remind you, or just say this, I want to thank all the people who participated in the Special Olympic Golf Tournament this Thursday. Uh, It was absolutely fantastic success in terms of how it was run. Uh, All the players seemed to have a good time. And the businesses that sponsored Special Olympics, uh, again, doing a spectacular job supporting the most needy people in our community. And I'll tell you, it's a great cause. And I want to thank the Money Talks listeners for helping us out with the live auction I'll give more details as we go, but I really want to make sure not finishing today without throwing out a very big and very deeply sincere thank you. We really appreciate the support, as do our athletes and as do their parents. Great stuff. Thanks for it. Have a terrific week.